In the late 19th century, Mark Hanna was a powerful man. He was a successful businessman who would go on to chair the Republican Party. And he also had a famous saying. It goes like this, quote, There are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember the second, end quote. As accurate as Hanna's observation was when he made it during the Gilded Age about 100 years ago, it rings even truer now when any conversation about the ongoing 2020 campaign inevitably returns to how much is in a candidate's war chest. We know this is going to be the most expensive election in history. And Bernie Sanders is starting the new year with a bang, announcing today that he raised more than $34 million in the final... Politicians of all stripes are using these hearings to bring in money in advance of the 2020 races. Like it or not, to get anywhere in the race to the White House, money is key. And so discussions on how this money is regulated have never been more relevant. On this episode of Wake Up to Politics, I talked to one of the best campaign finance reporters in the country, Michelle Yehi Lee of The Washington Post. We'll go over some key terms to understand if you want to follow the heated conversations about campaign finance going on today. We'll take a peek at a recent FEC report to let you in on how reporters like Michelle follow how candidates are doing in the dash for dollars. And we'll reach back into the history of campaign finance to talk about how America came to regulate money in politics. Because according to Michelle, in some ways, we're right back where we started in the days of the backroom boss, Mark Hanna. And I see this as almost like the second Gilded Age of politics in that there's just a proliferation of money and you just almost can't run a campaign unless you know how to tap into that. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. For the first 200 years of American democracy, money and politics went virtually unregulated, a wild west of corruption and racketeering. But the downfall of President Richard Nixon during Watergate was the tipping point. Because even though the hotel break-in gets more attention, at its heart, the scandal revolved around the money in the Nixon campaign's illicit slush fund. So Congress wanted to set up a system where there was regulation and enforcement, more disclosure about who's donating to campaigns and politicians, you know, restricting how much they can donate. And then they created the Federal Election Commission to oversee all of those new laws and regulations. One of the major provisions in these post-Watergate reforms was the introduction of public financing for presidential elections. And for every election from 1976 to 2008, both major party nominees eschewed private funding in the general election and instead accepted a lump sum from the government. This was really supposed to offset the role that special interests and the wealthy donors had in terms of their influence on politicians. That attempt to limit the influence of outside money on politics lasted up until the largely internet-funded campaign of Barack Obama in 2008. This was something that his supporters, especially those who are really cognizant about the role of money in politics, they really valued that about him when he ran for president. But when he started kind of going away from that, and then in 2012, he was being supported by outside groups, the use of public funding just dropped. And now you don't even see candidates really talking about it anymore. The role of money in politics continued to grow throughout the Obama era, coming to a crescendo with the historic Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission Supreme Court case in 2010. 
court has struck down the century-old ban on corporate spending in federal elections. Opening floodgates for companies and unions to spend all the money they want attacking political candidates. Citizens United is a 501c4 nonprofit group that sued to overturn a prohibition on outside groups spending money on federal elections. They won their appeal, and then some. It's actually not just Citizens United, but it's Speech Now versus FEC that also happened after that. Labor unions and corporations, including nonprofits, were able to spend unlimited sums of money on politics after this, uh, the Citizens United case. And then Speech Now kind of added on top of that and allowed outside groups to spend um, money on independent expenditures, which are the ads and other types of campaigning that are being done on behalf of those candidates. In essence, the Supreme Court ruled in Citizens United that money is speech, and therefore corporations, nonprofits, and unions can't be restricted from participating in elections under the First Amendment. And Michelle says it sparked a running debate over what constitutes free speech in American politics. It again goes back to the fundamentals of whether you believe that having greater means or lesser means should have an impact on the greater or lesser say that you have on politics. While the debate goes on, the universe of complex phrases keeps expanding. Things like super PACs, 501c4s, political nonprofits. What are the differences between these groups and the various classifications of political money? We asked Michelle to give us a primer to help make sure you can sort through them all. We'll start with the shady-sounding term that dominates much of the conversations about campaign finance, dark money. Dark money is more of a term of art. Um, People who want to see a restriction on the role of money in politics use this to often refer to nonprofits that don't have to disclose who's giving money to them and how much those donors are giving to them. Um, It's really a a post-Citizens United phenomenon, like we talked about. And because generally these nonprofits don't have to reveal their donors, even to the IRS now, you don't know um, who is funding them. And there's also a delay in their reporting of their financial activities. So they have to report through their 990s to the IRS. But for the public, we don't see those 990s until more than a year out. So not only do we not have any insight into who's funding these groups, we don't get their spending activity until more than a year after they've already participated in politics. Now, we'll run through those key groups that play a growing behind-the-scenes role in political campaigns. Most of the organizations using the dark money that Michelle was just describing are known as 501c4s. That is a nonprofit that's incorporated under the Section 501c4 of the U.S. Tax Code, which is designated for social welfare nonprofits. So if you register under that tax code, that means that you're working for the well-being of society and that some of that activity can include politics. And um, it, you know, most nonprofits don't have to disclose where they're getting their money. So 501c4 is a type of a politically active nonprofit that is usually um, what people describe as dark money groups. Next, there are political action committees, better known as PACs, and their super cousins. Political action committees are political groups that can raise money and spend money on behalf of a candidate. They can't coordinate with the candidate, um, but they can spend money and they could do all sorts of political activity to help the 
person that they're supporting get elected. Um, Super PACs is a form of a political action committee, except when it comes to the Super PAC, that's the independent expenditure group that is unlimited in the amount of money that it can raise and spend. So a typical PAC is limited in how much money it could raise and spend on behalf of a political cause or a candidate. But when it comes to a Super PAC, they could do unlimited fundraising and spending on their independent political activity, like polling or door knocking, running ads. And when it comes to PACs and super PACs, their donors are disclosed and their spending is disclosed. So you can see who's financing PACs and super PACs. All PACs, as well as campaign and party committees, fall under the umbrella term of 527 groups. So that's another important term to know. And then there's also the classifications of hard money versus soft money. Hard money is money that's going to the campaign, like from the donor. If you're actually giving your donation to uh, directly to a presidential campaign or a congressional whichever campaign, the the dollars that the campaign can actually take and use themselves. Soft money is a term that's used for everything beyond that. Um, money that's being given to super PACs or to um, like these outside groups that are all working outside of the actual campaign infrastructure to support um, the campaign that they that they want to see elected. Now that we've walked through some basic terms for campaign finance in 2020, it's time to learn how to read the paperwork. Coming up, Michelle gives us a tutorial on the way she reads campaign finance filings. It reminds us why, perhaps more than in any other election cycle in modern history, it's important that the public keeps its eye on how money is flowing through America's most powerful corridors. For me, Michelle is a go-to resource whenever filing deadlines arrive candidates need to tell the FEC how much they've raised in a specific period. These monthly or quarterly filings have been a huge part of what's driven the news coverage of the 2020 campaign. A good quarter means momentum for a candidate and the ability to blanket the country with TV ads, leaflets, and organizers. A bad quarter means a fresh round of speculation about how far that candidate can go. So I asked Michelle to break down for us what she looks for in those FEC reports. I'll walk you through basically what I do for many hours on an FEC filing night. If you want, you can even follow along with us. Since he raised the most money in the Democratic field that month, we used Bernie Sanders' report from January. You can find it on Sanders' page on FEC.gov. So if you want to follow along, just push pause and pull up the report for yourself. Trust me, it's worth your time. We'll give you a second to find it. Okay, let's dig in. We'll start with finding out how much the candidate has in their bank account at the time of the filing. Cash on hand at the close of reporting period, which is line 10, that is how much money that the campaign had on as of January 31st. And you always want to look at the filing period time that's at the top of the campaign, just so you know that you're looking at the right filing period. So cash on hand with the Bernie Sanders campaign, you can see $16.8 million. Um, and it really isn't until the rest of the campaign filings come in that you could p- place his cash on hand in context. And it turns out that in context, he had a huge cash on hand compared to his competitors. 
The next key number is to look at how much the candidate raised from small dollar donors. Line 17, which is contributions to the campaign. And we look under 17A, which is individuals. Itemized means donations from people who are giving more than $200. Unitemized means the small dollar donors. So that's the amount of money coming from people who are giving less than $200. And they're unitemized because as long as you're giving less than 200, you don't have to report your name to the FEC. When I look for the small dollar share, what I do is take the unitemized line, which is 17A2, and then you put it over the total contributions line to get the percentage of small dollar um, donations that were coming in to the campaign during this period. So by doing that, you'll get 53%, which means more than half of his, um, the money raised that period came from these small dollar donors. The next item Michelle looks at is the total receipts. You can look at line 22 to get a sense of how much money that they got uh, during that month, which is $25 million for Bernie Sanders. What I do just to be as uh, accurate as possible is I take line 22 and subtract 20D, which is total offsets to expenditures, which is things like um, refunds and um, other things that kind of take away from the total amount. In this case, it doesn't matter because he didn't have many offsets that month, so it still remains at about $25 million that he raised, which was huge. Finally, Michelle takes the total amount a candidate raised in the period and compares it with how much they spent to calculate what's known as the campaign's burn rate. To get the burn rate, what I do is compare the total spent and total raised, and you'll find that Bernie Sanders um, exceeded 100% of the money he raised. His total burn rate was 137? No, it was 100... Sorry, it was 103%. So that's a breakdown of how you can track how candidates are reporting to the Federal Election Commission about their financial activities. But it's also worth discussing the state of the FEC itself. Because as of right now, there basically isn't one. Since August, the FEC has only had three commissioners, one below the quorum it needs to conduct business. So the body that was set up after Watergate to investigate campaign finance violations, issue fines, and enforce election laws can't do any of that. Our political money system is growing and evolving in a way that the regulations just aren't there to catch up to. Um, And by that, I mean the evolution of the role of technology, that changes really quickly. The behavior of small dollar donors is changing quickly. There's more money moving through the system than ever. This is the first time that a lack of quorum has lasted this long. The last time they lacked a quorum was in 2008. And even then, they restored it as the presidential election kicked into gear. Now, there's no real political appetite to restore the quorum at the FEC, which means there's no watchdog effort being done on the great amounts of money that are moving through the system. And that's the reality that we're living with now. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because people always think that there's some sort of a, um, a check in place, that someone is making sure that the laws are being enforced fairly. Um, but right now, there is no such body. Between the paralyzed FEC and the post-Citizens United removal of restrictions on outside groups spending money on elections, The reforms put in place after the Watergate scandal are essentially unraveling before our eyes. Just as technological advancements 
have made it even easier for campaigns to rack up contributions in unheard of amounts. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer of On Demand and Content Partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. You can follow Michelle's great reporting by following her on Twitter at M-H-Y-L-E-E. And you can keep up with my reporting on the 2020 campaign and the daily political news cycle by subscribing to my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com.